1: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Hello, It's Still Me edition. It's Wednesday, November 24th, 2021. On today's show, King Richard tells the no matter how you slice it, astonishing story of Richard Williams, whose parenting helped turn Venus and Serena Williams into two of the greatest athletes of all time. The movie stars Will Smith as the heroically demented patriarch. It's on HBO Max and also for now in theaters. And then Adele returns with 30, an album whose feel and sound make it a sequel to 21, her monster breakthrough, even though I understand she had another one, 25 in between. It's a series of smoky, belty, deep moods and grooves, torch songs we discuss with Slate's own Carl Wilson. And finally, we will do something, I believe, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, unprecedented for the show, we will discuss a new release comic book, The Department of Truth, Why are we doing that? All becomes clear when I reveal Jamel Bowie has returned uh, for another week on the show. Jamel, welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, It's great to have you back. Um, You are, in addition to a Times columnist and a Slate alumnus, you're both a vintage and a first-run comic book fan, if I'm correct
2: about that. That is absolutely correct. I have been a comic book fan since I was a kid, and I still read them on the regular.
1: Uh, so cool. And I'm really glad we're doing this. I, I, a little sneak preview. I, I quite enjoyed the one that you recommended. Anyway, and then uh, Dana Stevens, of course, is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana.
0: Hey, how you doing, Steve?
1: I'm doing great. You want to know why? Because I'm a kingmaker, Dana, in the publishing world.
0: <laughs> Tell me about it, please.
1: I moved the needle on your Amazon uh, uh ranking uh, for the pre sale period, which as you explained quite rightly, you're caught if you're a book author, you're caught in this catch twenty two where, you know, the publisher might be glancing at those numbers, even though the book hasn't come out to see how much they'll promote the book. But how are those numbers going to move if you don't promote it? Step in the Kingmaker, aka Stephen Metcalf. <laughs> so listen, I just want to say it's like a it's become like a public radio fun drive. And I just don't care how annoying it is. I want people who listen to the show to understand, you know you're gonna buy this book eventually. You know it. So why not do it now when it most benefits the book and Dana Stevens, who, as we all know, is really about the only consistent aspect of the show that the majority of the listenership likes, according to our emails. <laughs> I don't think, have we ever got like a negative email about Dana? Oh my God. I mean, they want to toss me down a flight of stairs. But anyway, uh, Dana, just quickly, the title and the subject.
0: Oh, uh, The book is called Cameraman. Uh, as we discussed last week, it's about Buster Keaton, but it is not a biography. It's more of a, let's call it a cultural history of his lifespan. And the, the thing I had to add this week, Steve, in addition to thanking you for being my freelance publicist, and it really is true that after we released the Kraken on pre-orders last week, you could see the numbers go up in the next day. And it was really, really exciting. And I'm sure that the publisher noticed it too. And that's very helpful. And thank you, everyone who pre-ordered. But the other thing I wanted to say is that I spent all of yesterday, seven consecutive hours in a sound studio, starting to record the audiobook of my own book, uh, which was incredibly fun, very challenging. Um, all of these years of podcasting had not prepared me for how exhausting it is to talk into a microphone for seven hours. But it's it's also great. I'm really, really excited to be recording it. So if anybody is more of an audiobook person than a book book person, um, that's going to be available too. And you can also pre-order that on Amazon.
1: All right, let's make a show. All right, we're so accustomed to Venus and especially Serena Williams as sports world demigods, we may forget how improbable their rise to all-time greatness really was. Tennis historically has been an overwhelmingly white and middle to upper middle class sport. It's very expensive to begin with, court time, the gear, uh, lessons. It's not a naturally mastered technique uh, to hit a tennis shot consistently at all. But to become professionally competitive, that is a huge investment of time and money. Uh, This effectively means the talent pool for the sport can be quite shallow. Richard Williams set out to change that. He took his two daughters, Serena and Venus, to public courts in Compton, California, and in his own autodidactic, semi-tyrannical, obsessive, but I think, at least according to this movie, quite loving way, drilled and coached them. Until belatedly, some members of the tennis establishment began to recognize their immense talent. Feature film King Richard is now on HBO Max. It's also in theaters. It stars Will Smith as Richard Williams as the patriarch, a man trying to map a very narrow strait between the Compton Ghetto and the almost fantastical clubbiness of the tennis world. The movie takes us from their, I think, kind of earliest tween years up to Venus's first taste of professional triumph at the age of 14. In addition to Smith, the movie stars sonia Sidney as Venus and Demi Singleton as Serena Williams. Let's listen to a clip. Dana, will you set this one up for us?
0: Sure, this is from a moment late in the film when Venus, who's around 14 years old at this point, is about to play in her first big tournament. She's getting interviewed by a journalist, and as you'll hear, her father Richard, played by Will Smith, intervenes in the conversation. Do you want to turn pro? Yes. A lot of people are excited to see how you do against players like Celis. Do you think you can beat her? I know I could beat her.
3: You know you can beat her. Very confident.
0: I'm very confident. You say it so easily. Why? Because I believe it. But you haven't played a match in almost three years. All right, uh, ho- hold it right there, if you don't mind. Let me tell you who I. Richard, we're doing an interview. What, what she had said, she said it with so much confidence to face time. But you keep going on and on. But you can't just keep interrupting. But a what I'm you got to understand is you're dealing with the image of
2: a fourteen-year-old child, and this child gonna be playing when your old ass and me gonna be in the grave. When she had said something, we done told you what's happening. You are dealing with a little black kid. Let her be a kid. Now she done answered it with a lot of confidence.
0: Leave that alone.
1: Dana, that's an appropriately intense clip. I mean, the movie is, and some people have have uh, questioned this is really dominated by Will Smith and the character of of, of Richard. He's intensely loving, but he's also very very intense. Uh, the line between encouraging and smothering is, is. I think, the movie's very much a, about that and the difficulties I- inherent in that. What would you make of this film?
0: You know, I'm really conflicted about this film. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience of watching it. It's a pretty conventional sports movie in some ways. I mean, in the construction of the story, it certainly is a, a triumphant narrative of these two young girls becoming sort of emerging into their status as some of the greatest athletes of all time. I'm not sure about how I feel about the portrait of parenthood in this movie. And that is related in some way to Will Smith's performance in a way that I want you guys to help me understand. Will Smith is such a, you know, famously affable, lovable kind of figure. Here he's playing someone who I thought seems very sort of ethically ambivalent. He's an extremely mm-hmm. devoted father, but he's also a somewhat narcissistic one who, as we'll talk about, is imposing his own predetermined plan on his daughters, which, as he himself says in the movie, was conceived before they were even born. He decided that he was going to raise these tennis prodigies. Uh and I felt like the movie was always just on the edge of starting to maybe question the the morality of his, his parenting style, but never quite did it. The film is also produced by the sisters, Venus and Serena. And while I wouldn't call it a hagiographic portrait of their dad, it's also one that just only hints at the dark side under the surface. There's a revelation very late in the movie that he has another family that he is not in touch with at all. And in general, I just feel like this movie wants us to love King Richard, Richard Williams, because of his love for his daughters and his devotion to them, and because he's Will Smith, and that the movie doesn't go far enough in asking, is this the way to parent and is this the way to live a life? Then there's another question, which Allegra Frank has written about on Slate and others have written about elsewhere. The uh, the simple fact that this is a story that makes the triumph of the Williams sisters look like almost entirely the work of their father and in some ways the girls especially in the first half of the movie are are hardly characters they're you know they're sort of pawns who are acting out his his dreams and his schemes in the second half particularly venus emerges into more personhood and becomes a more of a real character but i would still say that this is an almost entirely will smith centric movie as the title implies right i mean it's about the king making of their father and uh, and I think that left me with a little bit of a queasy feeling, even as I was, you know, cheering them on in the in the final scenes of, of Venus's victory.
1: Hmm. Now, um, as I understand it, Jamel, the uh, Williams sisters are producers on this project, so it's it's a version of the story, implicitly, I would assume, sanctioned by them. Um, I hear Dana when she says it has queasy making elements, though parenting is itself can be inherently queasy. what you uh, would you make of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm probably a little more forgiving of the fact that it's so Will Smith centric, just because it is, you know, the Williams sisters were um, executive producers. This is, I think, the story they wanted to tell. And I think it's like worth respecting that they wanted to tell a story that centered on their father. Um, that said, I, the thing, so I don't like biopics very much. This is a, this is a thing that is sort of as far as my movie tastes go, I think they tend to just be formulaic and it's hard to do a good one. Um, uh, the kinds of biopics that works as they are tend to focus on like very specific moments in the person's life that are illustrative of the person. And it's just like a difficult feat, I think. Um, and so I went into this not necessarily thinking I was going to enjoy it. I ended up liking it much more than I anticipated. And that's largely because... Will Smith cannot help but be a charismatic presence on screen. It's just sort of his, yeah. his gift as a star. It's just he bleeds charisma. But I actually think that's the problem with this movie, that Richard Williams is, you know, by every account, a strange man um, and a strange sort of like off-putting man. And there is a version of this movie that I think swaps out Will Smith, whose natural and easy charisma kind of sands down any of the rough edges about Richard Williams, like he can, you know, Will Smith says Will Smith's version of the man can be grating, can be annoying, can be tough or whatever. But there Will Smith can't really do darkness at all and can't really do the, you know, the narcissism can't do. Um, the hardness and 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 his charisma um, obscure obscures those things even even more. Uh, I can think of a version of this movie that just stars actors who star an actor who could do that. So, uh, Soraya McDonald on Twitter, uh, uh, critic at the Undefeated, suggested Rob Morgan. Uh, who is an actor who you people have almost certainly seen in many things. Um, he's just a terrific character actor. But I think it's someone like Rob Morgan who does sort of in his characters and habits, the darkness might be a better take for this. But then that con- that like con- conflicts with the story the Williams sisters are trying to tell, right? So it's sort of there's a version of this movie that is has no input from the Williams family that I think is like a little uh, edgier. Um and then there is is this movie, which is very much is very much like a family movie. It's a movie that you you, know, you watch. You know, my parents would love this thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I felt that very strongly. I mean, it's to my mind, it's not a sports movie so much as it's a parenting movie uh, and a movie about a, a tremendously unlevel playing field, not only of tennis but you know the country at large. Um, it's a movie about parenting when nothing in the world, your class, race, your neighborhood is designed to help you. You know, it's, it's really a sort of in spite of not because of story. Um, I thought some of the scenes of family life struck me as poignant because they were real in some sense. Like I, 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 I there's a way in which, I mean, of course, children come out pre-individuated in ways that I think surprise a new parent. The extent to which they're sort of three quarters baked, you know, like the fourth trimester happens out in the open air. So in one sense, they're way more fragile and dependent than many other creatures in the animal kingdom, but they come stamped with a recognizable personality almost from the beginning. Um, But there is a sense in which individuation and personality are things that develop over time. And in the context of parenting, and this is a man who believed that he needed to be as fearsome in some respects as the world at large that they were going to face with a with a real world irony that i was floored to discover and is not uh, accounted for in the movie it's not talked about in the movie he moved them from a relatively more middle class neighborhood to Compton to the ghetto in order to toughen them almost as a way of preparing them for the kinds of you know di- a different maybe kind of menace that they were going to face in the in the tennis world there's even a story supposedly verified story that he hired school children to come to the Compton public courts and jeer them in order to get them ready for what they were going to later face, you know, maybe in slightly more genteel and passive aggressive form. I mean, I think Jamal is absolutely right, Dana. There is something. Lear-like and demented about uh, Richard. And in the script it's made clear this is a guy who was savagely attacked. Like, you know, the Klan he was, you know, getting beaten by Southern racists as a as a young man and carried this wound forward into into adult life. Nonetheless, it won't, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise or dismay me at all to see Will Smith win an Oscar for this. There's something... He undercuts the depth and the gravity of it with his, I agree with Jamel, irrepressibly impish charm, but it's still an insanely magnetic performance, right?
0: Yeah, and it's a very Oscar-friendly kind of performance. I mean, to be, you know, pragmatic about it, like this is exactly the kind of you know, it's a stretch for him as an actor because he's doing a Southern accent, right? He's doing a different kind of character than he usually does, somebody with a little more of an edge, you know, a guy from the ghetto who's had a hard life. I think it's a very Oscar-friendly kind of role. And obviously the way that he plays it is, you know, he brings that full <laughs> Fresh Prince measure of charm. But I'm really glad you mentioned that Compton story, the fact that he moved them to the ghetto. That's something that should have been in the movie, right? I mean, Agree, yeah. it, it, I guess, yeah, if it's, if it's his daughters who are producing it and they want this portrait of their dad to come out, out, that's that's what it's going to be but that detail helps you understand so much about the kind of man he was and this this mixture of kind of inspired uh right. coaching and and yeah. as yeah. you say kind of d- demented parenting and in fact the movie is somewhat disingenuous in that respect when i read that he had deliberately moved them there from you know a safer neighborhood i mean the movie presents it as if you know they they're playing tennis in order to get out of the ghetto in fact that's repeatedly spoken, right, by the dad in various scenes. And there's all these scenes where, you know, various hoods are endangering him. He's held it up at gunpoint at one point. He's, you know, beaten by these these thugs in the neighborhood. And all of that seems to, it, it points toward this very different kind of narrative than what was actually happening with the Williams family. And what was actually happening is so much more dramatically interesting.
2: No, I I think that's right, and I, again, I, I can I can imagine a version of this movie that um, that captures that you know the the I think Will Smith has been in two other biopics. There's the Pursuit of Happiness, and then also Michael Mann's Ali, which is a movie I really like, and I like it because I think what Michael Mann does well with that film is use Smith's own kind of inscrutability, right? Sort of the extent to which like this, he, he has a very public face, but you don't really, know, it's only even recently that we've really learned very much about his actual private life and his interior life. So use Smith's own inscrutability to um, illustrate a person who themselves was, you know, extremely public, um, but also in their own way, inscrutable, hard to know, as a private person. And I think, I think it, it would have been possible to take that approach with this film, sort of use Smith's own strangeness. Um, the fact that for all of his easy charm, he is kind of a weird guy, uh, a weird and an uh, intense man, right? Like this is like, this is a guy who by the time he was 21 had basically made himself um, uh, into a, a superstar uh, and, and use that to illustrate Williams as as a person and i think that's sort of you know p- plumbing uh smith's own strangeness and intensity um and inscrutability for a character for a person like richard williams who you know from the perspective of so many people around him did appear to just be kind of you know bizarre and hard to know um I think, would make for a more dramatically interesting movie. But then that's not necessarily a movie about Richard Williams, right? That's maybe a movie about Venus. That's, that's a movie mm-hmm. that's much more about how he's perceived by the people around him. Yeah.
1: Anyway, it's King Richard. You can see it on HBO Max or go to the theater. Let us know what you thought. All right, moving on.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
1: Okay, before we go any further in the podcast now is typically when we talk business. Dana, what do you have?
0: Stephen, we have one exciting piece of business, which is to tell listeners about our upcoming listener call-in episode. This is our annual tradition over the holidays. We always have one episode in which, instead of taking on our usual three cultural topics for the week, we just spent the whole hour answering your questions, whatever you want to email us about. I mean, there's really not even a, a mandate here. It's just it's just ask us stuff. Try not to completely humiliate us with your question, but it could be about our show. It could be about culture more broadly. It could be, you know, <laughs> questions, complaints, you know, department. Department of of chat, uh, including personal questions or maybe strange thought experiments that you want us to embark on together. So if you have such a question for the Slate Culture Gab fest team, which I'm reminding you by the time this show airs, will include Julia Turner once more because she's returning in early December, you can give us a call and leave us a voicemail message at 402. 402- Nine eight nine three three seven eight. Once again, the number is 402-989-3378. If you call that, you'll get a voicemail box and you can ramble on and leave us your question to be answered on an upcoming episode. And our second item in business is just to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. Since we have Jamel Bowie as one of our guests on the show this week, and if you follow Jamel Bowie at all on social media or read his newsletter from the New York Times, you know that he is a food guy. He loves to cook. He has interesting ideas about cooking. Every week in his newsletter, which I've endorsed before on the show, he includes a recipe And so we are curious about what happens at the Bowie household in Thanksgiving. So we will start off by grilling Jamel about his Thanksgiving, then talk about our own, maybe some of our recurring sides. I think this is a conversation we've had before around Thanksgiving time. But I mean, just like Thanksgiving is a tradition, arguing about what should and should not be served at Thanksgiving and at what time of day, et cetera, et cetera, is a tradition. So we're going to resolve or at least take on some of those Thanksgiving disputes with Jamel today. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you get to hear that bonus segment at the end of the show. And as always, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Signing up costs just a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts, bonus segments like the one I just described and many other shows have them too, and unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You will never hit a paywall when you're a member of Slate Plus. Most of all, if you're a member of Slate Plus, you are supporting journalism, you're supporting our work and the work of our many brilliant colleagues. These memberships really matter to us. So please, if you can, sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, the address is slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next?
1: All right. Well, as a critic has pointed out, um, um, it's almost like Michael Apted. Every few years, it appears Adele is going to update us with the new album, her... Studio albums have been titled 19, 25, and then there's the new one, 30. These are the ages she's at when she's produced the record. Uh, let me now quote our guest, Carl Wilson. The last time Adele Adkins released an album, 2015's 25, Donald Trump had not yet become the US president. The singer's British homeland had not yet held its Brexit referendum. George Floyd was still alive. So was Queen of Soul, uh, an eventual Adele cover singer Aretha Franklin. Um, Carl, welcome back to the show. Hi. Uh, Carl's the music critic for Slate. I thought that that was an important perspective, uh, both for your review and for our segment, that, that, that those five years, I mean, the album is ostensibly about her heartache, her divorce, uh, raising a young child. There's a ton of loneliness and pain on this record. But let's begin with just the world. has. The world has now become abyss acclimated in some sense uh this seems like an appropriate record for that
3: yeah that's really true and i would say the thing that happened in between uh the time that that 25 came out with you know hello is that sort of huge blockbuster single there was so much talk at the time about how, about the tear jerkiness of Adele. And, you know, there was the crazy Saturday Night Live skit where they had a whole family crying over Adele together, <laughs> uniting, <laughs> uniting a family at Thanksgiving that were otherwise fighting. There was this whole, there was treated as a novelty for, for music. To kind of have that effect for big mainstream music to have that effect, partly because we've been coming out of this really upbeat time from the like late 2000s into the early teens when music, you know, most pop music was really upbeat and dance floor oriented. It was the age of Katy Perry, you know, and it was and so Adele really stood out when all of those kind of geopolitical things happened and, you know, whatever other cultural shifts you might want to point to music slowed down noticeably, it was, you know, kind of tracked statistically that music got sadder and slower and even hip hop, you know, in the, in the kind of Drake effect became emo hip hop and, um, and music really changed. And, and Adele comes back at a time When it's not so novel, you know, we had Olivia Rodrigo at the beginning of this year with the big uh, driver's license, tear-jerking single, and that kind of thing is more commonplace now. And the interesting thing is whether Adele was going to feel redundant and, and not sort of standing out from the crowd in the way that she did but there's interesting things that we can talk about in this album where I, she also shifted over those times and and I, the pleasant surprise has been that she's found new edges to her voice and new mm. areas to go to where it's not really the cliche of here's adele turn on the waterworks even though of course there are those moments here so that that's the thing i find most striking maybe about this record
1: All right, will you pick out a track for us to sort of, you know, that has that on on display?
3: There's lots of things we could play. Um, But maybe to make that point, um, we'll we'll play the the deceptively titled Cry Your Heart Out, which is one of the uh, most upbeat songs on the record and enormously fun, really.
0: Well, you say in your great review of this record that the, I think you described the uh, the sound of those backing vocals, which I think is Adele's own voice, right? As, yeah. as a, a chip monkey sound. It's you talk about the chip monkey grain of the backing vocals. And I just, I think I just wanted to say the words chipmunky monkey grain back to you. But I wanted to know what you, you thought about, you know, that kind of playful sound that this seems like it's this deliberately retro and also um, unusually for Adele sort of deliberately artificial background sound.
3: Yeah, on several places on the album, you know, she does almost all of her own background vocals on the record, except for on the song Hold On, where she has kind of a, a crew of amateur friends show up and do kind of a really fun kind of amateur sounding backup vocal. But mostly, um, it's her own backup vocals. And in several places, they're electronically processed, partly to, I think, make it sound like a different voice than the voice that's at the front but I think also to kind of create these artificial atmospheres and give you know there's there's kind of the retro girl group part of it there but there's also this satirical element of like almost self-mocking in those vocals could kind of undercut the, mm-hmm. the you know lacrimose quality of of this of the lyrics on pay on the paper and in the, the the last song love is a game she does some of the same kinds of things and it, it's Again, I think it's her coming at this album from a less self-serious point of view than the stereotypical Adele approach that we might think of from six years ago or nine years ago, and and it's something I really appreciated. And, And there's experiments going on throughout the album with production in these subtle ways. You know, none of it is radical. Adele's not about to put out you know some kind of crazy drill um, track or something like that, but it didn't. And it still caters in a lot of ways to the fans who want that Adele feeling, but there's lots of subtle things she's doing with her collaborators to Create variety and different emotional tones throughout the record, and and this chipmunk vocal thing is one thing. And there's these kind of jazzy touches in other places that are places she hasn't gone in quite the same way before. And then, again, these are the things you know. We can talk about the things that are maybe less work work less well on the album, but that that's something I really have appreciated about it.
2: Jamel, you want to jump in at all, or do you yeah, want... I, I mean, I. I... I enjoyed listening to the album. This is actually the first Adele record I've ever listened to. Prior to this, my only Adele exposure was the theme to Skyfall.
3: So I
2: I enjoyed listening to this. I. Uh I I think I'm less uh, interested in the ballads, more interested into the parts of this record that are, um, seem very heavily influenced by soul, by girl groups, um, uh, that are, that, that are a bit more, a bit more upbeat, which I think is, goes to show that I'm not sure Adele is for me exactly (laughs) Uh, for as much as she is, you know, a remarkably talented vocalist.
1: You know, it's funny is, is, Adele, for me, she's for me, Carl, in a way that you point to when you use the word multi-generational. For me, this, the, the, the 21 album, which was obviously just a blockbuster, um, you know, will forever be linked with driving my then nine and six-year-old kids around and all of us listening to it as a family, and just kind of understanding that it had a pretense to to universality, even if part of that went through the Byways of Schmaltz or or, or whatever. I, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't want to denigrate the record. It's in some ways a great, great pop album. But um, it's not... My love of Adele is not separate from that, but nor should it be in some way. I love the idea of like the old Roman lustrum, you know, where you take stock every five years. I, I want there to be 35, 40, 45. I'll check in with Adele for the duration.
0: I feel the need to jump into this conversation just to say that Adele is for me. (laughs) And while I don't think this is my favorite of her albums, I think that is probably still 21, which is just banger packed from, from beginning to end. But I so appreciate Adele being this kind of private and diaristic artist and someone who comes out with these album albums that are really, um, you know, reflections on where she is at that point in her life to the point of being numbered with her age when she made them and that you have to hear the album. And ever mm-hmm. since the the single from this dropped a few weeks ago, we've been talking every week in our conference call about what to cover on the show about Adele. Should we talk about Adele? Her new single's out. It's doing really well. And I kept on saying, and I think we all agreed, no, we have to wait for the album because she's an album artist, right? You haven't really listened to Adele if you're just listening to a single because it's part of this sort of bundle of of journaling that she's doing. And it's very easy to mock her for it because it's very emo and very sincere and pretty retro. She's never going to be, you know, this cutting edge artist who's working with the coolest, you know, Swedish engineer in the studio or something but I love the timelessness of Adele and I love that she appeals to so many generations. You know, I also listened to her with my, my kid when she was little Steve and we would belt Mm -hmm. out rolling in the deep together in the Mm -hmm. car. But I can also imagine, I don't know if my parents know her, but I can imagine my parents putting on an Adele record and really enjoying it. And to me, she's a part of this kind of tradition of a long tradition of the British white female soul singer, right. Who has an incredible belting voice and, and this sort of, timeless and a little bit hokey quality, right? That appeals to everyone like Dusty Springfield is in that, is Isn't that group. And maybe Amy Winehouse in a way would have been if she had lived and continued to sing. Um, but I, I was so looking forward to this album, and even though I don't quite, I haven't listened to it quite enough to get its complete zeitgeist, I wanted to maybe put on a little bit of the very first track, Strangers by Nature, which I don't know if it's my favorite song, but it's the, the one that has stuck in my head the most after a few listens. And the thing that she has said about this song in interviews is that she was inspired by listening to a Judy Garland live concert show to write a song that's in this somewhat um, you know big band, old-fashioned style and I just I love the the minor thirds and the, the unexpected things in this song Strangers by Nature. Strange. But Carl, something we haven't talked about much, although we have talked about the fact that she is this diaristic kind of journaling artist, is uh, the, the changes in Adele's own life and how this is this is a divorce album, right, among other things. Um, she's, she's writing about her son. You write a little bit in your review about being somewhat disturbed about her inclusion of her son's voice and her voice in these very personal, intimate voice memos on the album, and I'd love to hear you talk about that. She's also gone through this huge change in physical appearance, right? I mean, she's slimmed way down and is now like a, a much more... Sort sort of presents much more glamorously, which has produced this interesting, you know, backlash in the media, which we could maybe talk about. But I wonder if you have anything to say about the autobiographical elements of this album and of her career in general.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, my my kind of default stance as a critic is to try and ignore all those things as much as humanly possible. <laughs> but um, Adele
0: won't let you ignore them.
3: I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just because um just because I think too much of uh, music conversation at this point in history is consumed by a kind of non barrier between tabloid gossip and the music itself. Um, and most of the time Adele keeps her private life pretty private. Um, despite how personal the songs are, she kind of avoids, um, overly being confessional and she's not, she's not a big social media person and all of these things. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, she last week did an extensive special where she had a long conversation with Oprah. So, you know, not so purely. Um, and the, the things that detract from this album, you know, it's interesting to me. It's calling it a divorce album. It's not a divorce album in the classic sense that we often talk about in music. It's not a blow-by-blow blow of the pain and heartache and and conflict it's kind of a post-divorce album and a recovery from divorce album mostly um and lyrically i think both its strength and weakness is there's there's a lot of sort of therapeutic self-talk going on um and 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 points that's really touching and at points it maybe feels a little indulgent but the good thing with Adele is you can shut off your lyric brain if you want to and just listen to the sound Um, but the the track that you were referring to with with her son's voice on it called My Little Love which is really this beautiful kind of Sade-esque you know again kind of a little bit more jazzy than we're used to from her track Tell
1: me you love me I love you I'm really
3: I
2: don't
3: recognize You know I I was ambivalent about this in my review and over a few days since I wrote about that, I've come around to, to deciding that I actively despise the voice memos on that song, that it's maudlin and manipulative, and I think actually kind of offensively a breaching of her son's privacy. Yeah. And then and the track ends with her in tears talking from a different recording, talking to a friend. And it's really the point where Adele falls into both I think the pressure on celebrities right now to to disclose their behind the scene reality which is of course always constructed and not real and and also falls into the this thing of what fans want from her which is this like utter blubbering emotionality Mm -hmm. when she's actually a much more sophisticated artist than that and yeah so that's among among several places on this album where I'm like oh here is where it tips over that line for me and and those recordings are are the really strong point for that
1: Alright, who am I kidding? I'm about to go on a five hour pre-Thanksgiving drive with my entire family guess what we'll be listening to Uh, Carl as always, what a pleasure please come back soon, great review on the Adele and really fun chatting
3: Great, thanks for having me Some places take you away, some bring you
0: together
1: I'm LeVar Burton, and if you're ready
2: to escape into another world for a little bit, check out my podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. I read my favorite stories aloud every week
1: by everyone from Stephen King to N.K. Jemison to Toni Morrison. Plus, we add a little sound design and music to make it a truly immersive experience. Listen to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, as I said up top, we don't typically do this, but uh, I'm so, so glad we did. We dug into a comic book at the recommendation of Jamel. This one's called The Department of Truth. It's about an FBI agent who studies conspiracy theories and how he has his mind blown by the possibility that even the most outlandish of them think Flat Earth, JFK, alien shapeshifters, the moon landing, they might be true. Jamel, I loved this, and I'm eager to say why, but uh, tell us first why you picked this particular comic book.
2: I picked this comic book because I also love it. Um, it came to me via just a a random recommendation. I was looking for something a little spooky for Halloween to read. Um, and I believe someone on Twitter recommended that I check out the department of truth, uh, which is independent comic, not published with Marvel or DC. And I was just blown away by the art. First of all, I think the art is very evocative. Um, uh, I think the the art is sort of it very much captures and it, this is done deliberately captures the sort of shifting notions of reality that the, the story really deals with. Um, but then also the conceit of the whole thing I found really interesting and really fascinating and a really great way to to illustrate um, something that I, I think we recognize as true in the real world, which is that, you know, reality is a reality, but also perception can change and alter reality and perception can make enough people believe things. And to some extent, those things can become true or at least people will behave as if they are true. And that is, it's not really a twist, but that is, I think that 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 is the, the big idea of this um, comic, which is it's not just that there's this FBI or this federal agency devoted to conspiracy theories, but the federal agency um, is in possession of the knowledge, the secret knowledge that, in fact, if enough people believe that the Earth is flat, then the Earth will become flat. Um, it will, it will, reality itself will change. And so, this agency is devoted to preventing people from preventing the spread of conspiracies, um, or at least conspiracies that might fundamentally alter reality, as uh, as the United States government uh, understands it.
0: Yeah, it, it occurred to me as you were describing the basic premise, Jamel, that it's almost a a parallax view kind of story, but very much one for the Trump era. I mean, conspiracy theories are as old as the hills, right? But this particular way of thinking about conspiracy, that it's something that can shape reality and this idea that there is, you know, there's sort of a shadow world out there that we can we can bring into existence by believing in it. uh, It just it seems like something, although there's no explicit, at least in the issue that I've read, there's no explicit topical references to the present day. Seems like something could only be true in the post social media age and in the post-Trump age,
2: I think that's right. I, I you know, when I uh, picked this up, I ended up kind of going through all all the issues that are currently um, out, and there aren't, there isn't, I'd say, a topical reference. But at one point, they do allude to Sandy Hook and QAnon and these sorts of things um, as conspiracies that uh, you know have begun to get come get out of control and thus like demand the attention of the Department of Truth.
1: Okay, just a foundational question. I, I read this issue on uh, the fir- the fir- first issue online. Uh, you you get a hard copy?
2: No, so I um I there are there are things I do get hard copies of just to help out my local shop. Um, but this I because I, I was sort of looking for it um, on a whim. I read it on my iPad. So I have one of those gigantic iPads. Oh, that, nice. Um, I read comic books on.
0: I have a question for both of you about the form and the look of this comic a little, because I'm not a big comics reader. I love a few graphic novel style presentations of stories. But in general, just I guess because of the kind of learner and reader I am, it's always hard for me to concentrate on the image in comics. Whenever there's a graphic element, I tend to just read what's in the bubbles and then forget to look at the pictures and then have to go back and look at them later to get whatever information is being delivered by the illustrations. And I realize that is very much the wrong-headed way to read comics, but it's sort of my book-trained brain can only look at them that way, and so I wanted to ask both about this particular comic and, in general, in this this format of you know stories that are being told simultaneously through illustration and words, um, sort of how do you read them and approach them? That's different from the way that you would read a book, right? Like, what do they bring that a that a story would not bring? And also, in this case, the uh, the drawings and the text are by two different people. James Tinian the fourth is the author, and Martin Simmons is the illustrator. And I'm interested in the tension in this particular comic between you know what we read and what we see. Because what we see, we haven't really talked about the image yet. But what we see in this this comic is very uh, obscure and hard to make out. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a deliberate blurriness to the pictures. Most of the faces seem somewhat. Um, almost rendered in this this pixelated style where you can't fully see the face until there's suddenly a panel where, you know, a face pops into relief. And, of course, obviously that goes with the theme of a conspiracy theory and with things being hidden under the surface. But there's just an interesting tension in this particular comic between the look and the text. And I don't know what this question is. I guess I'm asking how you both responded to that and how you read comics in general, given that tension.
2: I mean, so... I tend to – the way I read comics is I tend to um, ignore the words first and look at the art first and sort of try to figure out what's happening um, by way of looking at the art and the, the way the panels are arranged. I mean the interesting thing about comics that I think is difficult to capture when they're whenever they're adapted to screen is that the panel – um, is not just a, a you know a way to showcase a particular perspective particular image right like treat it often like a camera um, you know first panel might be a wide shot establishing where you are then you'll have like a close-up and interiors and such but then the panels also can demarcate time um and so a, a move from one panel to another could be you know one panel could represent, the next moment, it could represent an hour later. It could represent a day later, depending on on how um, the writer and the illustrator have approached this. Um, and so, you know, for me, that's part of part of just like looking at the looking at the images first is sort of figuring out exactly what's happening in terms of space, in terms of in terms of you know uh, tempor temporality, if that's a word. Uh, maybe it's not. I just made it up, but I think you know what I'm saying. And um, uh, uh, going from there to actually seeing what people are saying, because this is one of those uh, comics where you know what people are saying is important, right? It helps unravel the mystery. But also, I I, I do think so much more of the story is told through this um, this shadowy kind of not totally abstract but somewhat abstract um, imagery imagery sort of. You know, rooms are sparse with only Mm -hmm. the people in them. Details like smoke, like are abstract and geometric. And as you noted, Dana, faces are often obscured, um, often covered in deep shadows. Uh, It's it's very much trying to capture this idea of conspiracy, of a hidden world, um, of your perception not really being quite what you think it is. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I was, I mean, the look of it, Jamel, is what struck me immediately and made me know I was going to love it because I... I had a totally unslakeable appetite for more of these images regardless of what the story was or what was being said. They're so painterly and they're both completely familiarly comic book in in a in, in a in a way and you know they're not totally outside of the, you know, range of expectations for comic book art, but it's as if, you know, like Edvard Munch or, or Cy Twombly, or, you know, it's, it's both got that kind of deep shadowy eye sockets and kind of human misery worn, you know, heavily on faces of like Munch and it has, but it also has this kind of, you know, the artist. Martin Simmons, I believe, is his name. S i m m o n d s. He's also playing with surfaces. He, they seem scored and they're painterly, right? You you sense that the that the actual physical materials of the of of that he's using, whether it's actually paint or not, I don't know, but it probably isn't. But you know, you sense that they're layer that they have three dimensional layering on the physical surface on which he's ma- making these images, and there is something. That works perfectly with the thematics of it and the story of it, because it is, as you say, it's kind of smeared, blurry, uh, edges are ill-defined, you know, people sort of shimmer into figurative presence and then shimmer out of it. Uh, It's just fantastically arty in the best possible sense of that word.
0: I have a question to throw out to either one of you, which is that I just saw that this comic book is being developed into a TV show by the same production company that made Chernobyl for HBO. Interesting combination there of, of subject matter and material. And uh, just wondering whether you think this could work on TV as a series and, and, and how it would look.
2: I think it's genuinely difficult to adapt comic books to screen um, in, a, in, a, in a way that I think is... Um, uh, captures what makes the medium... Unique. I mean, I think one one comic book fan criticism you could make of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for example, is that they kind of just mine these things for characters and maybe plots, but there's no. I don't think there's any real attempt to kind of capture the feel of a comic book, and that's in contrast to what is my favorite superhero movie, um, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man Two, which um, totally captures the over-the-top melodrama. Of a early Spider-Man comic, and um, Raimi, throughout that movie tries to play with images in a way that you might see in a comic book. So the scene where doctors are trying to remove the, the mechanical tentacles from Otto Octavius is very comic booky in the best way, um, and that's something that's uh, I think it's hard to do. And so I, I you know, I my hunch. It's an adaptation. This is going to be kind of a straightforward procedural, um, and kind of miss the things that that I think give it power as a comic book.
0: Jamel, I'm so glad to hear you shout out the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies because to me, those also are sort of, I mean, really the only comic book movies that have truly grabbed me. And I sometimes attribute that to maybe just them being the first ones, you know, very early in this era that we're now so deeply ensconced in, or to me being so much younger when I saw them. And I sort of sometimes fear that my my st- my feeling that Tobey Maguire is Spider-Man, Cliff Robertson is his uncle. What's the uncle's name who dies at the beginning of uh, every uncle, Spider-Man movie?
2: Uncle Ben. <laughs> uncle
0: Ben, right. To me, those people are archetypal frozen in those roles and I've always regarded that as a weakness in my own apprehension of uh, superhero movies but now that Jamel Bowie has rubber stamped it I feel good about it
1: (laughs) all right well uh, it's Department of Truth you can find it online the first issue is uh, free online as a teaser and we'll uh, include a link to it we'd love to hear from comic book fans but also you know if you're a non-comic book fan and you've been enticed into reading this we'd love to hear what your reaction to it is uh, excellent. Okay, moving on.
2: Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones, and I'm producer Zach Stafford, and we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything news culture and entertainment and how it all feels that's right we talk about any and everything on our show from real life issues like grief to music and movie critiques and that barely scratches the surface yes indeed and it doesn't stop there we have got a lot to say so join our group chat come to life follow and listen to vibe check wherever you get your podcasts
1: Okay, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
0: Stephen, my endorsement is Adele-related. It is a little piece of media that made me cry, and more than anything on Adele's album made me cry even, which is going some when you're talking about uh, someone as deliberately tear-jerking as Adele. It's this clip that went viral a couple days ago after Adele appeared on a show on British TV called An Audience With, so in this case, An Audience With Adele, which is kind of a funny title as if she's royalty. But I gather that this is some kind of show on ITV, the British channel, where famous people appear and other famous people come and sit in the audience and ask them questions. Because at least in this clip that has gone viral, Emma Thompson, the actress, stands up in the audience and asks Adele about whether there's someone in her life that had a special influence on her when she was young. Adele then proceeds to talk about a high school English teacher who inspired her and encouraged her to write and uh, encouraged her love of language and then says, "I haven't seen her in 20 years, but she was wonderful, Miss McDonald." And then, of course, they produce Miss McDonald, who's in the audience, who hasn't seen her former student for 20 years.
3: <laughs> Hi, how are you? Oh, you look exactly the same. You look exactly the same. What, are you still teaching? No, no. What do you do? Do just still No, I'm just looking after my family. Oh,
0: my <laughs> God. And uh, and she comes up on stage, and they embrace, and it's just it's a wonderful moment. It's a moment that to me is is just about you know, the inspiration of a mentor, which is always something that will break me down in two seconds flat. And, uh, and just to hear that heartfelt and I think genuine surprise when they bring the woman up on stage is, um, is, is a great moment. So, uh, we'll post a link to it on our show page, but it's Emma Thompson's question to Adele on the ITV program, an audience with Adele, and then Adele's response and her embrace of Ms. McDonald.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Uh, Jamel, what do you have?
2: I uh, Now that it's over, I, of course, have started a television show, and that is uh, the Apple TV, Apple Studios. I'm not really sure how to describe that whole operation, but the adaptation of Isaac Asimov's Foundation um, trilogy, the first season just ended. It's 10 episodes or something, and I started watching it um, just kind of on a whim uh, while I was doing dishes, you know, something to have on. And I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed it not necessarily because it's the strongest thing in the world, um, but because I'm I'm just interested in depictions of the very very far future uh, that uh, try to present human culture as like kind of alien. Um, by that point, I think that's sort of an underrated technique for depicting the future um, futures that are are just like fundamentally strange. It's what I liked about the the it's what I like about Dune as a property. What I liked about the the recent Dune movie which is that it shows a future humanity that is truly bizarre and alien and not unlike our own. Hmm. I think Apple's foundation does something similar. Um, so I uh, recommend that it looks good at the very least. Most, most of the, all the actors are pretty good. It starts Jared Harris, who is always great. Um, I love that guy. I love seeing him in, uh, in everything.
1: Uh, I love it. Um, well, it's, you know, doing the show for, I don't know, well over a decade, all the episodes kind of run together and. a, single monochromatic slurry, you know, no disrespect. But um, but then there are these certain moments that just stand out forever. I mean, one of them being like unboxing the iPad, right? And like not being able to make it work like a bunch of clods. And the other would be like <laughs> tasting the world's best pie, right? And Julia, whose job in life is to greet everything I say with withering skepticism, you know, put that pie in her mouth and just... You know, I don't know. She just had a very epiphanic experience uh, live on the Culture Gap Fest, which I think turned around the fortunes of that pie stand. Um, it's filled with skinny jean hipsters now. But um, uh, but but another has to be, you know, kind of the all-time greatest-slash-worst endorsement was when John Swansburg said, I'd like to endorse a TV show called Cheers. And you're like, well, how about like a sky that's the color blue or, you know, you know, a a form of music known as jazz. It was like, John, I think that's not the point of the endorsement is to talk about something everyone's consumed and everyone already loves. But um, we were just ribbing him. I love John and uh, miss him. And we got to get him back on the show. But I'm now about to do John Swansburg one better. I'm going to endorse a little band called The Beatles because I I love the Beatles. I mean, I I love them advisedly. Like, they're like Shakespeare or the City of Paris, like, or Van Gogh. Like, loving them is inherently trite, and there's a certain amount of work to get past that and really experience for yourself whether or not the thing is as great as all of the accreted opinions, you know, uh, say it is. And I think that's there for the Beatles. Uh, But um, there's this new (laughs) slant way, as it were, to get at their greatness, which is, and I didn't know this a few years ago, a bootleg that's been circulating for decades and is legendary um, uh, called the Esther demos for where it was recorded, I think at George Harrison's house in like a posh suburb of London called Esther. And it's essentially, they've all returned from India. Uh, They're Varying degrees disenchanted with one another, with the concept of the Beatles, and very much with the Maharishi, uh, who George Harrison sort of dragooned them into going to visit over there. Uh, and they had all they brought acoustic guitars with them to India, apparently, and done an immense amount of songwriting. They felt like they did not want to repeat Sgt. Pepper's, which is a vi- the studio is a huge. It's almost its own beetle, And like the, the, the use of the studio famously, of course, had never been so extensive. Sound effects, layering, on and on. And now they wanted to be songwriters and a band, uh, even though they were beginning to hate one another. Um, and they produced the White Album, which to my mind is this. I mean, it's just personally, this, this, is, this is not a norm. This is not empiricism. It's just for me, it's just truly one of the great works of popular art of the 20th century and of art period of the 20th century. I, I mean, to me, it's just unsurpassably their greatest work and the greatest, you know, work a rock band has ever, has you know, has ever produced. And these are just them showing each other the songs for the first time at George Harris, Harrison's house, playing acoustic guitar, and occasionally another Beatle chimes in and sings like a, a ad hoc harmony. Um, and maybe there's a tiny bit of instrumentation here or there. It's a lot of the songs on the White Album being debuted for one another. It's just it's just unbelievable how good they are. Um, and, and then also the mind-blowing fact of how much they evolved in the four years, five years since they came out with like, I wanna hold your hand. And so for me, that was a way of just wiping off the the layer, the grime layer of familiarity from the Beatles and just you know re-encountering their genius and then very very quickly and i'll talk about this more maybe next show because i went on so long about the beatles rachel Cusk is a f- fucking genius i love her novels i've come to them belatedly they're 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 the, the the combination of of depth and precision uh of observation like depth of feeling and precision of feeling is is kind of almost unrivaled i love these novels english novelist though she's originally from canada i think she's ended up pretty permanently in england uh by way of los angeles but anyway highly recommended and uh, as i say i'll probably gas on about them as i've read more of them janelle thank you so much for coming on the show
2: uh, oh thank you for having me on the show
1: dana as always a complete delight
0: As ever.
1: Uh, You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We do love to hear from you. Our uh, introductory music is by Nick Bertel. Our uh, production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Jamel Bowie and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope to see you soon. And happy Thanksgiving. And bye, Dana's book.